0: First Timothy chapter five, beginning in verse one, Paul writing to Timothy says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. In these final chapters of 1 Timothy, Paul's attention is now going to turn to the subject of relationships in the church. And as you can imagine, for some, forming friendships and fellowship in the church is difficult. There are many people who are relationally driven, but there are many people who are also very private. It's very difficult for them. But as we Christians are called to mutual ministry, one of the things that's impossible is to be a Christian by yourself and minister by yourself. The very definition of mutual ministry requires one another. Paul is going to provide some guidance in the broad categories of at least seven different groups in chapter five and in chapter six. Those groups include older and younger saints, widows, church leaders, servants, read slaves, troublemakers in chapter six, verses three through five, rich, chapter six, verses six through 19, And I know automatically, most of us are going, troublemaker, I'm not in that category. Rich, I'm not in that category. Educated, chapter 6, you may or may not be in that category. But Paul is going to remind Timothy of how leaders, in particular young leaders, are to conduct themselves in the church and in fellowship. Again, contact with people inevitably leads to conflict, proximity, and intimacy is an invitation to difficulty. But according to the Bible, we should note right from the start that the pastor's job is to promote peace and to practice encouragement. And we should also think carefully of Paul's use of familiar family terms. He's going to use terms you're all familiar with. Father, mother, brother, sister. These are intimate terms. The church is a family and we're to treat one another like a family. Now, even that statement might cause red flags to all of a sudden pop up in your mind, particularly if you grew up in a home that was not normal. I'm not saying like Adam's family, not normal. I'm just talking about not normal. And by the way, for some, the home was a difficult place, not exactly a safe place. You may have even grown up in an abusive home. But Paul's words are meant to be taken in the context of healthy families who find healthy ways to express healthy affection. So Chuck Colson, who was a former advisor to President Nixon and found himself in jail because of Watergate, had this amazing conversion in prison. Chuck Colson wrote, quote, the family is the most basic unit of government as the first community to which a person is attached and the first authority under which a person learns to live. The family establishes society's most basic values. And I'm thinking that Paul is using these familiar terms because he wants church to have that kind of value. And so again, we should pause and we should ask ourselves, what is it that we value as a church? and we value Jesus, we value the gospel, we value peace, we value unity, we value love for one another, we value the fact that God has entrusted each individual with unique gifts and callings so that you can minister to one another and encourage one another. And it's because of those values that we have to find a way to resolve problems and, and deal with conflict. And by the way, from here in chapter five, verses one, all the way to chapter six, verses 20 and 21, It all seems to be in the context of figuring out a way to live with one another and encourage one another and minister to one another, even in the midst of conflict. So he begins with instructions to older men. We treat them as fathers. Look what it says in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. So Paul is going to give two guidelines to Timothy. One is negative and one is positive. The first, do not rebuke. The second, exhort as a father. And so in that culture and society, respect for elders was a value. You may have grown up in a world where respect, respecting elders was was a cultural value that you learned from a very early age to respect men and women who were mature. I'm reluctant to use the word vintage, particularly when it applies to me. But we're not to become impatient or resentful with older men. And by the way, the verb translated do not rebuke is an interesting word. It's epipleso. There's another word that's used in Luke seventeen three, where it says that we're to rebuke someone who sinned against us. And you go, well, why does it say don't rebuke here? But it says rebuke there. It's two different words. The word that's used in Luke is to cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. This word is a strong compound word that can be translated sharply rebuke. Literally the word epipleso incorporates the idea of harshness or sternness. It can even incorporate the idea of physical assault because it literally means to strike or to beat upon. But grandma's wisdom still applies. My granny said, learn all you can from old people. They've been down the road that you must travel. There's a Greek proverb that says, respect gray hairs. There's an American proverb that says dye gray hairs, make those hairs go away. But again, it becomes a part and parcel of the way that we think about the aging process. In the ancient world, a private rebuke was always preferable to a public rebuke. And since the word here means severely censure or sternly reprimand, there's a sense of harshness, maybe even an element of violence. And so we can think of this in either the literal sense or even the metaphorical sense, which, which could mean to beat down or to engage in verbal abuse. So when a church member has to be corrected, it should never be done with severity, anger, and certainly not violence. The church is not a place for violence. The church is not a place for pushing, shoving, hitting. Family members are exhorted or corrected and so in this particular passage when it used that uses that term exhort him as a father. it's an interesting word it's the it's the word paraclei it means to appeal it means pleadings one of the names of the New Testament, uh, Holy Spirit is parakletos. It's the same word. In other words, one of the very names, the titles of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit, which is called alongside to help. Called alongside to provide or to help. And so the word means to come alongside, to strengthen or make a provision The picture that I have in my mind in our culture is when you're broken down by the side of the road. You're broken down and maybe you're in a circumstance where it doesn't seem like it's way past your ability to cope with whatever has happened to you. And someone comes along and they literally stop and they look you in the eye and they say, can I help you? That's the meaning of this word. And so, We're not to yell. We're not to scream. We're not to push. We're not to shove either literally or metaphorically. Now, again, I want to remind you of the context. It's an old man who's sinning. Well, does age always bring wisdom? Not always. Are old people capable of doing things that are wrong? Yes. So what do we do? Well, I've got a word of encouragement if you're old like me. Being wrinkled doesn't mean being ruined. (laughs) I heard the story of a granddaughter who came to grandpa and she touched his white hair and she touched his wrinkled face. And she said, grandpa, does it hurt? you'd laugh, yeah. It doesn't hurt. Samuel Johnson wrote, quote, he that lives must grow old, and he would rather grow old than die. Has God to thank for the infirmities of old age? I like that. If you're old, blame God. Guy King wrote, quote, accept it, adjust to it, adorn it, unquote. So does age sometimes bring strong opinion? Sometimes. We've all heard the cliche, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We get that sometimes older people become settled in their ways. Sometimes they become reluctant to embrace new ideas. It's very difficult to make sometimes ministry adjustments. It's sometimes difficult to adjust to methods that are unfamiliar. We get that older people may act out by complaining or by murmuring or by criticizing or by gossiping or by voicing opposition. And this is not meant to mean you, you can't disagree or you can't have an opinion. I'm talking about the kind of division that results in difficulty for families. Paul warns Timothy to deal with the seasoned saint with grace, with tact. We correct and discipline as a father, not as an enemy. Some of you may have been in push, drag down fist fights with family members, but that's not healthy and that's not normal. We have to find a way to resolve problems and deal with conflicts. We have to remember that we are family, that we are not enemies. So what are we to do when an older man requires correction or discipline? The Bible says that you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a person with meekness. We have to define the problem in terms of the goal. We have to find solutions. John Newton at the ripe old age of 82 said, quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner And Jesus is a great savior. If in your journey, you begin to forget things, hold at least on to those two things. And guess what? We'll find a way. Because the way that you deal with correction and discipline doesn't change whether you're eight or 80. We have to define the problem in terms of the goal. The wonderful thing about sin, if there is a wonderful thing about it, is it can be confessed, it can be forsaken, it can be forgiven. There can be reconciliation. And so he says, and younger men, at the end of the verse, as brothers. In the Roman Empire, younger men included anyone under the age of 45. Siblings sometimes fight. You may have grown up with a bossy brother or a sassy sister. I remember a mother was correcting her children because the older daughter had kicked her brother in the shins and pulled his hair. And she said, Sarah, how in the world did the devil tempt you into pulling your brother's hair and kicking his shins? And she said, The devil might have something to do with me pulling his hair, but kicking his shins was my idea. Sometimes we find ourselves out of control and we need to be corrected and we need a new direction. Paul reminds Timothy to treat younger men, listen carefully, as equals, as peers. Paul wrote an Titus chapter 2, verse 6, young men, same word, likewise, exhort, same word, paraclei, to be sober-minded. Do you think Timothy possesses genuine pastoral authority? I think that the answer is yes. But Timothy is still a brother. He's still a member of the family of God. So Paul's point is to interact with each other, with kindness, with gentleness, with patience. And again, think of all the young men who have made their greatest contributions in their youth. As it turns out, 70% of the founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence were under the age of 40 when they signed the document. Mark Zuckerberg was a self-made billionaire by the age of 23. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates made their first millions way before 30. Albert Einstein's revolutionary theory of relativity was written when he was 26 years old. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence when he he was 27 years old. Young men are to be invited and accepted into the life of the ministry of the church. We're to show affection, consideration, respect, and care. But again, the context is conflict and discipline. The point being that even in the midst of conflict and discipline, there's room for guidance, there's room for support, there's room for discipleship. We all need to be taught, and some of us need to be corrected. Sometimes that correction is just simply a misstatement, but sometimes it's a correction and a discipline in order to keep on track. Smug and superior airs are never welcome. We're not to underreact or overreact when people are taken in sin. People come into my office often and they'll look at me and they'll think, should I tell the pastor what's really going on? As if you could tell me anything that would shock me or surprise me, I've got to admit that every once in a while it happens, where someone will come in and they'll say something and I'll go, but that's really rare. Contempt and disgust do not lend themselves to confession and repentance and restoration. When people are in trouble, They need help, they need prayer, they need to find a way out of their sin and they need to find a solution that's going to incorporate forgiveness and reconciliation. We're to put on brotherly love, spirit-filled compassion but the same is true in every age, under every circumstance. Sin has to be identified. It has to be forsaken. And we have to find a new way to live. And so again, we put on brotherly love and spirit-filled compassion and Christ's own care. And look at verse two, older women we treat as mothers. This begs a question. How did you treat your mother? And if the answer is with disrespect, then again, you might think, you mean I'm supposed to treat older women like I treated my mom? Remember the context. (laughs) The context implies that again, you had a normal, healthy upbringing. The normal, healthy upbringing is You treat your mother and your father with respect. Sometimes that respect was earned. Sometimes it was learned. I don't normally brag, but when I was in junior high school, I could run pretty fast. In high school, I could run very fast. One person from the sheriff's department said, have you seen Gino Geraci? He can run the 100 yard dash in 10 seconds flat. And they go, that's pretty good. That's even competitive. He goes, but he was carrying a color TV set. (laughs) Can you imagine if I dropped the television set and then could run with more focus and purpose? The reason why I'm bringing this up is because my grandma from Mississippi, when I disrespected her, she could take a switch off of a tree And no matter how fast I ran, she ran faster. See, you're laughing, but you get it. It's sometimes correction and discipline are what's needed in order to get us back on track. How did Jesus treat his own mother in the New Testament narratives? There are three words that come to my mind, love, dignity, respect. In the ancient culture, women were not always treated with courtesy, with dignity, with respect. In many cultures, women were seen as little more than property. Paul knew that even in pagan cultures, families had to have discipline and they needed to defend themselves in their home, at least according to some minimum standards of decency. Healthy human relationships between fathers and mothers and sons and daughters constituted appropriate analogies of how to behave in the church setting and in the congregational community. It wasn't that long ago, particularly even now in the South. You can find yourself in North Carolina or South Carolina, Georgia and Mississippi, Louisiana and Texas, and it's not uncommon for a complete stranger to say to an older woman, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. There were certain elements of cultural propriety and dignity that spoke of a culture of respect. In the book of Proverbs chapter one, verse eight, we read quote, my son, hear the instructions of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. These are the instructions that your mother gave you at a tender age. That's the reference. In Proverbs 23:22, it says, "Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she's old." I was going to include some statistics about elder abuse, but that's actually not the point of the passage. It isn't the cultural decline. It isn't the disconnect between generations. All of these words and the Bible's instructions imply that normal people under normal circumstances are going to treat each other with dignity and propriety and respect. And so the challenge becomes, again, to appreciate each other, to minister to one another, to look with care and concern upon people who are older. But again, what happens when an older woman requires correction and discipline Again, here's the idea. Older men, older women, brothers and sisters. Again, it's supposed to be done with gentleness, with tenderness, with respect, with understanding, absent smugness, self-righteousness, putting on airs of superiority. Rather, it is an avalanche of pleading and patience. And so finally, young ladies were to treat as sisters. Look at the end of verse two. Younger women as sisters with all purity. Now again, Paul is reminding Timothy that we're to treat younger women as sisters. And he adds that term, with all purity. Now, again, in both the ancient and modern world, immoral thoughts and lust were problematic. Sexual deviation, acting out in wicked ways, isn't something that was unique to that culture. It's a problem all over the world. And so Timothy is not only to avoid what is sinful, but he's also to avoid any contact that might be viewed as inappropriate, even to the point of the appearance of evil. In one Thessalonians chapter five verses twenty-two through twenty-four, as he's talking to the, that group of people in Thessalonica, he's going to say, "Look, even avoid the appearance of anything that might be viewed as inappropriate." So the leaders were to conduct themselves with purity towards younger ladies. Our ladies are supposed to be protected. They're supposed to be guarded. They're supposed to be nourished within the church. We respect and protect and help younger women. Our job is to help them grow spiritually. And so it was Alfred Lord Tennyson who wrote, quote, My strength is as the strength of 10 because my heart is pure, unquote. In other words, he's using a poetic phrase that basically goes to the heart that, hey, guess what? When we act with purity, with single-mindedness, then the chances are we're gonna be given sufficient strength to do what is necessary. Purity is the quality that Paul has already mentioned earlier. In chapter four, verse 12, remember he said, let no one despise your youth, Timothy. Be an example to the believer in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Some Bible writer wrote, it covers moral behavior and transparent attitudes without hidden motives, unquote. The implication being that we find ways to act with propriety and purity. Again, once again, the context is correction and discipline. We are to correct young ladies, and discipline in love, exercising care, Absent severity or disgust. It's the same in every circumstance. And again, in the ancient world, sexual exploitation was a profound problem. There seems to be evidence from the New Testament citations that sexual exploitation took place in the broad culture and tragically, shamefully, it even took place in the context of the church. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not confronting a man in their congregation who apparently was sexually involved with his own father's wife, Reed stepmother. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul gives a sordid description of false teachers who make their way into the fellowship of believers, fake Christians. Paul writes, who creep into households and make captive of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, unquote. We are sad and sickened by anyone who would come into our fellowship and exploit vulnerable women for personal gain or gratification. As hard as this is for me to say, we will never ever tolerate sexual predators in our church. There are certain things, you, you, people might think, well, isn't there a way back for them? Yeah, there's a way back for them, but it's not gonna be in this church. They're going to have to find a, some other way, some other place. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart in Matthew five twenty-seven. The Bible prohibits sexual expression outside of marriage, and some people give themselves permission to feed their fantasy or fuel their lust, and they comfort themselves that looking never ever really harmed anyone, but it's not true. In just a little while, we're going to be having a sexual trafficking conference that's going to Feature a uh, Douglas County detective who is also part of the FBI's Lost uh, Innocence Task Force. I was doing some research on this particular subject, and sex trafficking is a problem not just in Los Angeles, not just in San Diego and San Francisco, it's a problem here. There are ladies here who are in trouble. And I also learned that the number one step that you can take if you really are disgusted and you want to find a way to help ladies who find themselves in distress, the number one thing that you can do right now is to stop watching pornography. Just stop it. Stop it. Stop it. But there are other things that can be done. We're to help one another. We're to minister to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to find ways not to fall into the traps of physical abuse or sexual exploitation. Fathers are to protect their sons and their daughters. And in both the ancient and the modern world, children have been victims of the most gross abuse and mistreatment. We have to find a way to make sure that that doesn't happen. Our goal is spiritual growth. Our goal is Christ-like character. And this is why confronting sin becomes such an important part of who we are and what we do. It isn't because we're trying to figure out ways to hurt each other, we're trying to find ways to help each other. And since our goal is spiritual growth, we're to focus about who we are in Christ, what it means to know God's will, cultivating spiritual disciplines, knowing the truth, living the truth, defending the truth. And so over and over again, you hear that constant theme, and we have to come to grips that there are certain kinds of behaviors that are unwelcome and unacceptable for believers. Healthy families have healthy boundaries. And that has to include respect for people, God-given people who maintain a measure of dignity. And privacy and modesty. So clearly, God designed human beings, men and women to be attracted to one another. In my worldview, I call this the urge to merge. That's not wrong. But it has to be done in a healthy way, in a God given way. We're to make every effort to not put one another at risk. Not your leaders, not your pastors, not your brothers, not your sisters. Paul exhorts elsewhere in First Thessalonians, like I said, I alluded to it earlier in chapter 5, verse 22. Abstain from every form or appearance of evil. We're reminded that Paul encouraged women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. In other words, again, ladies, when you dress with modesty and purity in mind, it's in order It's a loving admission that you care about your brothers and your sisters. I'm not suggesting that you put on a burqa. I'm not suggesting that you wear sackcloth or ashes. I'm not saying you can't dress nice. But what I am saying is, if you're a Christian, you're making an, an extraordinary claim. Do you know what Christians claim? They claim that Jesus can save you from your sin. But they're making another claim. The claim is that this same Jesus who comes into our life, who washes us, who purifies us, who cleanses us, that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he has the ability to change our way of thinking and to change our way of living. The Christian is making the extraordinary claim, Jesus has changed my life. The implication being, he's changed the way that I conduct myself with other people. C.T. Charles Thomas Studd famously said, the best test of a sanctified man is to ask his family about him, unquote. If you wanna know what I'm really like, ask my wife. Hopefully she'll keep it quiet. No, I'm just kidding, I'm I'm just teasing. But you understand where I'm going with it. There are people in your life, they know how you are. They know how you are in private. They know how you are when the lights go out and nobody's around. Do you know what old people, and young people and male and female all have in common. They all have unique pressures. They all have unique temptations. They all have unique thresholds. Do you know what else they have? Unique areas of vulnerability. You may not have known this, but yes, Older men can be vulnerable and older women can be vulnerable. Younger men and younger women, they can all be vulnerable. This is why we have to purpose in our heart to guard each other and protect one another, but it's also the reason why we have to have the courage to confront one another so that we can minister to one another and encourage one another. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4, Now we exhort you brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the feeble minded, uphold the weak, be patient with all. I want you to think about that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5:14. Exhort, warn, Comfort. Be patient. There's not one size that fits all. Warn the unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. How do we deal with conflict? We warn those who are unruly and divisive. That means out of step that means out of touch, that means committed to disrupting the unity and the peace of the fellowship of the church. Here, unruly meant those who refuse to work, but it means something more, I think, and that is the kind of people that Paul is warning about are the people who walk disorderly, not working, busy bodies, finding reasons to create drama and trial. And then he says, we exhort. That means encourage and comfort those who are in constant trouble, constant difficulty, persistent problems. We help them rise above their difficulty. We help them rise above their difficulty and to persevere in Christ. There are going to be people who are always, it seems that the rent is due. The, the lights are going to be turned off. They're in constant trouble. They're in constant difficulty. Paul says, comfort the faint-hearted, which in the Old King James translates feeble-minded. It doesn't mean weak in intelligence. It do- doesn't mean mentally or emotionally deprived. That's not the meaning. It, the meaning the f- means someone whose resolve is weak. We need to help people reinforce their resolve to honor God and obey God. The church should be the place where a person goes and can receive compassion and support and comfort and love. The Bible says we uphold the weak. That means we help those who are spiritually, morally, physically weak. Spiritual and moral support is is probably the central idea Though we can't rule out physical or financial issues. But when Paul says, be patient with all, It means the grace of long-suffering. But in particular, it's the grace of long-suffering towards a person who rubs you the wrong way. It isn't towards the person who you look at and you love them and you adore them. It isn't like a grandpa with granddaughters who say, what is it that you want here? This is grandpa cutting his wrist. This is me bleeding to death. It doesn't matter because whatever you want is whatever I'm going to give you. Yeah, whatever you, it's not that. This is the person where you look at him and you don't want to give them anything. They rub you the wrong way. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about that person that gives you the opportunity to go, Lord, Gino talked about this person earlier. This is a person who rubs me the wrong way. And now I am going to pray for the patient grace that is necessary to do what the Bible tells me to do, to be patient with all. You know what the text implies, though? That you really are going to be generous with the people who are mature and old in your life. Grandmas and grandpas. You're going to be gracious and careful with brothers and sisters because they're a part of your family. But even for the people that you don't quite see as a part of your family... God is calling you, he's calling you to think differently about one another so that you can solve problems, resolve conflicts. There's always an alternative to complaining. And that is, Lord, help me find the solution that's going to most glorify you in the circumstance that's been brought to my attention. So we're gonna have communion here in just a moment. Um, I'm gonna have the worship team come up, but, um, and then I know Jimmy and the guys are gonna hand out these communion elements. And so I'm gonna have the worship team come up, but I'm I'm gonna pray for you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, these instructions that have been given to us, it's supposed to help us. It's supposed to help us find a way to do what we need to do to preserve the bond of peace and the fellowship of unity in a congregation that values the Bible, the gospel, truth but also each other and so again lord we pray that you would help us that you would minister to us that lord you would give us that kind of patient grace particularly for those who we find it difficult to deal with and so again lord we thank you that for many, even though we're reluctant to say it, that we might be that person who ropes them the wrong way. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to be men and women who are gracious and kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, patient with all. And so again, Lord, proximity, intimacy it usually means that there's going to be a problem at some point down the road but lord we pray that by your holy spirit you would make us men and women who are kind and generous and gentle and so lord again thank you for grace thank you for the gospel thank you for the cross of calvary thank you that there's forgiveness of sin and hope for a resurrection Lord, we pray that you would even now prepare our hearts as we get ready to have communion. In Jesus' name.